Welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where we talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. I'm Glenroy. And I'm Landvel. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug, preserving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottom. Bottoms up. Is it last time I do it? Only send me that try sing. So make me cut it short that time here. Because on the naga, then the naga fuck with me. Right? Because on the naga, a girl do have that kind of voice. But how are we, how are we doing? Um, Tell the girls about look at dance where you go the other day. Then right, it's not a dance. <laughs> I went to support the Red Run in London. I went to give my contribution, right? That that that's what I did. I was so not a 5K or 10K. I did it. Well, it was five and ten, but you know, as, as a good runner, as an avid runner, I had to do the ten. Right, as somebody, and I represent your roots. Exactly, exactly. So I, I, I had to do um the maximum amount. Do you know that? There you go, there you go. Represent your people. Yup. So I'm <laughs> back in I am back in the wheels. Mm. Um went to Winter Wonderland. That was nice. Was um, Which did you go on the ride? Wait, we carry all the way up, then drop it down. Uh no, first of all, we went on one ride, right? What? And after that one, I was like, I, no, no, no. I was like, cancel, cancel. That one, no, no. Maybe we should have chosen a, a, a different ride. Maybe maybe my experience would have been better. And I, was just, and I would have been like, okay, I'll do another one. After that one, I was like, no, no. I think this is it for the night. What do you mean? You should have at least the tree. Then right. <laughs> at least, because they still did have like the haunted house or something, no? Yes, yeah, they have all of those. So which which one are you go for, man? I don't even remember one with twisty and turning and turning upside down and all kind of things. Ooh, mm. I, I I can see now. I did I did remember with name, but you go up, you go down, you get the yeah yeah the man hold you upside down, and I was like, all right, cool, cool, alrighty. Yeah. All right, so that was you not necessarily choosing the best ride to start off with. <laughs> I can I now understand your perspective, man. But I remember when I did it, I went on the one that carried it all the way up and then dropped it down. And then I, re- I remember as I was going up and I was thinking, I really this moment I said, my God, foreign boat. Exactly. Like, exactly. can you imagine me? I lose my tree pine, so. Exactly. Why am I need to up this eye? Exactly. But you know. And, and, when, the Jama- and, and when the Jamaican media gets it to report it, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Mm-mm. So, what are your Christmas plans? <sighs> writing, writing, writing. Girl, bye. I don't. I I really haven't thought about it because I have um my assessments. Well, my dissertation is due in January. Um, so that that's the bulk of my writing. I really don't know what I'm doing for Christmas though. You don't have family in the UK. I don't. I don't. Wait, that's such a Jamaican thing to have at least from cause from where in some kind. Well, my family never decided. My family maybe they've decided that America was better for them. So majority of them in the America, none uh, of them never really put them foot over here. Them never. I don't know why. I see. I see. I see. I see. Maybe they colonial. 
<laughs> no, not the colonial. <laughs> Glenroy, anyways, what's up with you? <laughs> it's, it's, it's Mr. Nico's birthday, but my work. So, so things are going, that means things are going down after work, before maybe things have already gone down. Part one. No, 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 no. Okay, I'm going to spin the narrative on the podcast. <laughs> this morning, I cleaned. We went shopping because the host didn't need things. He's currently cooking before because he may or may not come hey, with us. Hey, 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 Glenn, y'all, y'all live the, there's something in life, you know. I love that for you. Well, I'm very shopping. Me. Glenn, I clean. Glenn, I go shop. No! <laughs> Who is this Glenn? <laughs> Glenn. I was always this Glenn Lanville. I it just I, I never I didn't make a, a thing out of it. I was always this Glenn, right? You see what it is. This is patriarchy at work. When I was a single woman doing this kind of activity, no, no one made it made it a thing. But now all of a sudden I'm in a relationship. No, we're bringing out the bells and whistles for these mundane activities. But yes. So and then we're gonna add amigo or we'll go without him. Uh, he goes with me to the town hall. So um, may or may not go tonight. He might decide if he wants to. But we shall see. But okay. we're really in a day. The year soon done vibe. And planning for my my, my sojourn with my godmother um, for Christmas. Because I really did some my mind day. Me, me, oh, like, will you be in Jamaica? Like, I know no, last year you went to... But I'm going to I love, I'm going to Soka forever. Uh-huh. Cause period. But after that, oh wait, not them rubbing me in this game. Um, I'm gonna leave and go to South Carolina to spend it with my godmother. Um okay. because I spent the last Christmas with my father, which was cute, but I know better than to spend two Christmas back to back. <laughs> because then my godmother got have an issue politics. So I'ma do Christmas with her. Um and the last time I spent Christmas with her it was a really good time. And plus, it's a nice place to relax and be disconnected and focus on some other things, especially as I prepare for next year, because I'm tutoring again in January. So we need a nice break in continuity, as it were. So that's, that's nice. a quiet, relaxing Christmas. Okay, that's nice. Okay. That so, nice. so what's the topic for today? So today we're talking about the pops, the monkey pox. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Mr. Harvey Kennedy Pitts, um, a health education and pro- promotion specialist. He's also a CEO for Black Black Beetle Health. Um, and as I was telling Glenora before, Harvey has Jamaican roots and Harvey knows i met harvey at as i've been following um harvey on socials right and i met harvey at pride in practice conference then right <laughs> <laughs> sentence and talk, was talking to talking to um harvey and he brought up a particular topic which we won't bring up on the podcast and i was like then harvey i never know so you know the tea will happen in a jamaica land we love but welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, Harvey. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I have to hear this tea after we finish in a car. 
Did this sound like? <laughs> Not at all, no. Uh, so before we get into talking about monkeypox, um, Harvey, um, as I would have said before, you have Jamaican roots. I want to hear about um your Jamaican roots and um the work that you have been doing um around healthcare um for black people of color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so interesting that you introduce it in that way. Um, so as you say, thank you for the intro. Yes, both of my parents are actually Jamaican. My dad is Jamaican, born. You know, mom is Jamaican, born. Dad came to this country. I mean, they, I'm based in the UK, and he came to this country when he was um about seven, seven to join his dad, who'd come sort of the previous year, which is quite a typical thing for people to come to, you know, in various ways and for various reasons. Mom came to study nursing at 19, and then we, both me and my sister were born in this country. So we've since lived in other places. I've lived in the States. You know, I've lived in South Korea. I've, you know, come back about sort of eight years ago. Um, and was based in London and then came up to Manchester when I started my doctorate. So it's um, quite, a, quite a global experience. So um, talk about code switching times 10. Yes, I've switched to all the codes and back, and you're probably going to hear lots of code today as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... So which parts of the UK did you grow up in? Was it like London or outside of London? Yeah, so I'm, I'm ba I was born in London, uh, so Croydon. Um, and then, of course, when I came back as well, you know, I sort of went back to East London, um, which is, um, so it's Croydon South, East London is East, so it's Stratford <laughs> area, where my family is um, now, um, and then ended up relocating to Peterborough and then to Manchester after that. Okay, okay. So mm. what led you to wanting to do work in public health? I mean, it's you know, this is a very common question um, when it comes to asking public health practitioners because a lot of us actually started off in medicine. So we actually did cellular molecular biology or biochemistry or chemistry. And we just sort of said, oh, we're going to go and do medicine. We're going to go study medicine because that sounds like the right thing to do. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, public health reared its head and it said, let me talk to you for a second. Let me just, let me... Let me chat to you, you know. And so I said, okay, you know, I did my MPH when I was in uh, South Korea, and I did it um, while I was teaching um, English um, on the campus and also in some local institutes. And essentially, you know, I really fell in love with public health. Public health became an option for me at that point. You know, medicine was a um, a dream, but I think looking back, I sort of thought to myself, wow, I almost got stuck doing medicine. Wow, you know, I really escaped this one. So. I absolutely do love public health and what we can actually do with it. We get to do so much in public health. It's so broad and, you know, you, it's really flexible and it allows you to travel and to speak and to share and to do research and to work with people and to mobilise communities and, and the list is endless. So, um, you know, it's really around wanting to utilise my health knowledge and background to really try and make some large scale change, um, find my gap, um, as it were, and then take it from there. Nice, nice. Yeah. It's giving I want to save the world. I like it. Did I? <laughs> <laughs> What's new? Don't we all want to save the world? Yeah. And if you want to save the world. Put in the top of a bit. Put some things in order. Let the next girl come on. <laughs> yes. Oh. So like, uh, you know, yeah, I wanted to become so to, so to jump in um to today's topic harvey I, I want to start with the you know in journalism 
um we do the who what where when how um mm -hmm. so I want to kind of start with just a general a layman's term of like um what is monkeypox how is it transmitted because I know before um it came up well not came about before um 2022 um a lot of us wouldn't have heard about um monkeypox um and even in the way it's now being transmitted um so there's a lot of a, a new new knowledge I, I would say about um monkeypox yeah so Actually, monkeypox is something that's not new. You know, it's been around for quite a long time. Uh, and certainly from a public health perspective, it's it's one of those that we hear sometimes associated with Central and Western Africa. Um, and, you know, they're in places where there might be, um, you know, sort of what we'd call human to, to, to animal interaction, whether that's through food or diet or even through sexual contact. We know that that's, a, that's quite a... Um, poorly understood route of entry, but it does happen. You know, there are um, cases where we can only trace it back in that way. Um, you know, you'll have seen similar um, sort of epidemiological approaches taken when we were looking at COVID, when we were looking at swine flu, bird flu, you know, that is the um, sort of the infectious um, disease control pathway that we tend to to follow to try and understand what the etiology is or the um, sort of the infectious pathway of certain, um, certainly viruses that are communicable. So, um, you know, we um, were looking at monkeypox in the early days, you know, as if it was something brand new, but actually there was lots of research that already existed that told us what it was, um, that we knew that smallpox was a, an available vaccine for that. We didn't have to create anything new. We didn't need new information. What we needed was sensible methods of health education and promotion and also training for clinicians. And so that became the conversation starter and people were quite um i think happy to be back out and about after covid you know the, the restrictions have been put down and then um here comes uh you know conversation about monkeypox and even in some cases polio in 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 sort of water samples in london and so people didn't know how to react um you know to the to the emergence of this as num numbers were rising now this didn't end up being as as large scale as say um you know covid um or even uh, sort of um, other examples um, of, uh, of communicable diseases, but really it was significant enough, mainly because of what types of audiences and what types of populations sort of the health education promotion content was being aimed at. And so you might have heard, um, you know, sort of comms relating to gay and bisexual men of sex with men, saying that this was probably um, linked to sexual transmission, um, that, you know, most cases were being seen in these groups that actually... Um, you know what, what we need to recommend is again no sex you know all these types of um, you know pub, sort of very knee-jerk reaction comms that came out and it was quite a big wave of um, you know dissatisfaction with that naturally you know if you identify with certain groups and, and people are saying that it's it's it's, it's black people it's spreading in it's it's gay men it's spreading in it's this group it's that you know you, you can feel that that stigma becoming a problem already and um, people did report experiences of 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 mistreatment in services, going to their doctors, clinicians, trying to gain clarity on uh, on what was going on, lots of fear and lots of mistrust. And so that was the, the initial message. And as um, sort of more epidemiological um, interventions and, and research and, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, conversations were happening amongst those um, at UK HSA, certainly, um, uh, there was clarity around what the numbers were and how people were catching it, you know, um, how it was being spread from person to person. Uh, and also some of the ways that we could modify our language so that we were not being stigmatizing uh, and singling out certain people um, uh, until we had the facts. And the fact is that while numbers were quite small, there were still precautions around sort of pride time. So obviously the the, the cases that were coming out, a lot of them were actually 
um, and I want to be really, really careful not to say MSM. It's not just men. Um, sorry, I want to say gay bisexual men who have sex with men. I don't want to say gay bisexual men. That is an identity. It does not talk about people's uh, their practice or what they do in their private time. And so that language around who are we saying is most affected or who might be at risk. It's really around um, the MSM side of things. So if you're engaging with um, sort of sex as a man who has sex with men, that was where we could say, okay, based on the epidemiology, that's that's a likely area of risk. And so we need to be be really sensitive around the commas, but really, really clear that that's who's affected. And so there were sort of um, campaigns happening nationally across the Pride season to try and make sure that that was the message that was coming out um, with with a really, really simple message, which was continue to wash your hands, look out for symptoms, look for lesions that are, you know, unfamiliar on your skin, sort of circular dots, um, um, and then also some earlier guidance, which had said that people need to self-isolate for 21 days. That was actually removed because that was no longer needed, particularly for those who were um, uh, engaging with um, the available, uh, available vaccination. So that, that was sort of the, the whistle-stop tour of what happened with monkeypox, um, both from when it was sort of first emerging, what we did not know about it, um, and then what was sort of being done about both the language and the epidemiology and also the virology element to try and understand how we could try and mitigate some of the spread um, of, of the virus. And so... As we know, cases have massively dropped, but precautions still remain that we need to be sort of quite vigilant because we know things can sometimes go latent and then they can, well, not not latent, but they can seem to disappear and then they can um, sort of reemerge in numbers. We say, I thought we got rid of that. And there's just, you know, something that was sort of lingering under the radar. So, um, so yeah, that's sort of the, the overview, I think. All right. He's a slow girl, right? So <laughs> we're going to break this down. <laughs> right? So where could you know? So first, yeah. um, so I, and I guess I'm gonna start at the end. I recognize, of course, that there was a kind of initial scare around monkeypox, and then, mm. as you rightfully you noted, that things kind of died down. And I'm wondering what accounted for that. Um, it was it because of the rise in fact the availability of vaccinations connected to smallpox, um, like the communication and the media sensation around monkeypox kind of died down. I was wondering. What, what 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 accounted for that? And then I have a second question, but I think that's a larger, more philosophical question-ish um, that I wanted to ask. So that one first. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, vaccinations, we know the vaccinations work. We know that they've worked with um, loads of things. You know, MMR, you know, measles, mumps and rubella, which we sort of get at point of birth. We know that when we get um, hep B vaccinations, for example, if you're working closely either in clinical settings or you um, might get the recommendation from your clinician to say, if you're having certain types of sex, um, it's probably beneficial for you to have your, your um, not just your, hep, um, your hepatitis vaccination, but also um, like HPV vaccination, which can sort of protect against genital warts. And, uh, and that's really important to say that vaccinations do actually do what we say they're going to do. Even though there's speculation, there was lots of um, confusion around vaccinations, both with monkeypox and with COVID. We know that they actually do what they say they're going to do. Um, uh, and that might vary. We know that some people have had some reactions to some types of vaccinations, and that's um, that does happen. Um, but in the grand scheme of risk and what would happen if we vaccinated entire populations and achieved things like herd, herd immunity um, uh, and also raise the level of just general you know, immunity to infectious diseases, there is a benefit. And the same thing happened with monkeypox. People did start queuing up. They did start running campaigns. They did start, you know, recruiting people into these mobile clinics and working with local clinics as well to try and ensure that people knew where to find the vaccination, could come and get the vaccination, 
could be given proper information about what monkeypox was um, and then told that actually it's not an immediate effect. You don't get sort of the smallpox vaccination and you can just, you're, you're you know, free to go and do what you want to do. There is that two week period to three week period where you do need to let the vaccination do what it needs to do. Um, and now your body to build up some of those antibodies. And so, yeah, vaccinations did have a lot to do with that. But I think also the awareness, so that's a public health side of things to say, be aware, look at your skin, you know, anything new appearing, anything that you were not expecting, feel free to just dial, you know, into your clinician. So we have 111, you can dial up and just ask questions. Um, uh, but then also to avoid um, sort of contact, sort of sexual contact or close contact, um, skin to skin, certainly, um, with other people while you're still investigating that. Um, and so the combination of both the clinical side of things, which we would call sort of um, uh, midstream care, so the sort of upstream, which is our policy, our midstream, and then our downstream, which is um, you know point of care services. That combination of um, sort of mid to to downstream was really effective. Do, do you think, Harvey, coming out of like um, COVID, um, do you think that people's risk perception be um, monkeypox was that high so people's perception of risk or the actual risk of monkeypox um people's perception of risk yeah i mean people's perception of risk will always vary and that that's based on people's health beliefs so there's a, a variety of different types of health beliefs on that people have some people say oh i'll never get that or people say i'm definitely going to get that or some people might say yeah maybe i might get that but i'll be okay and some people might say i'm going to People might even say, I'm going to try and get it because I'm probably going to get it anyway. So there's, there's a variety of different types of health beliefs. And so that will be reflected in people's perception of risk as well. So that's very much on an individual basis. And there are also social elements of someone's perceived um, risk based on their cultural competency or their cultural, um, not competency, their cultural um, uh, capital and their social capital, who you're around, who you're spending time with, what you're learning, what is typical for you to know within your community. So that will always vary. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Glenn. I, I wanted to, to also ask, um, because based on what I was seeing, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of the communication that I saw um that are that I got from um about monkeypox came from Twitter. Um and I know somebody like that, Greg Owen, um invested in doing like a lot of threads um on twitter about monkeypox where people could get when vaccines became available where people could um get the vaccine you, you saw that kind of um community um approach why do you think that um the that specific to the uk or the national health service didn't necessarily play a big or a bigger role in in terms of the education and awareness yeah this is controversial and you're sort of right in being quite measured in asking that question because i'm going to be equally as measured in answering it and that's because yeah there were complexities around people's response um and when i say people i do mean um where we normally would imagine information and intervention should come from which is from the nhs from the um you know sort of uh, uk hsa which is our uk health security agency and so yes there was a little bit of um, delay in um, sort of 
comms coming out or you know direction signposting what do we do investment in vaccinations there was also additionally a disparity between who was getting vaccinations in places like london as opposed to people who were getting vaccinations and making them available in places like manchester and so there was a massive campaign to try and think about how equitable or how equal that was in the distribution of of, of that vaccination and so there was always that sort of financial preference or that sort of postcode lottery or that geographical benefit of being in london um, uh, where other places were really having to campaign and say, actually, we would like to have vaccination as well. And so so OXA would also respond by saying, we understand those concerns. Uh, and, and it's not intentional that that's being done, but it was done epidemiologically based on um, risk numbers, um, not just location and finances or preference. And so there's lots of debate. I think that comes up as a result of people's positioning. So if, you, if you're in the community and you're not linked to any of these conversations, you're on the waiting end. If you are on the system end, the system is massive. So the NHS is massive. Um, you know, um, public health is also massive. And so it's very difficult to turn a big ship like that quite quickly. And so what actually we're trying to learn within health protection, which is sort of the field of public health that sort of um, looks at um, uh, infection prevention and control, amongst loads of other things as well, thinking about how we can keep the population safe. Um, it was the, you know, what, what we use for COVID as well, health protection. What we're trying to understand is how we can respond quickly how we can have those processes already in place so that when these things happen, we know what the process is. And I think that there have been learnings, but there's also shortcomings still. And so um, people like Greg Owen, massive platform, you know, he's the type of person who's always, um, you know, um, can be as a go-to to sort of share important information. Um, and is one of many, so people who have large platforms. And that's sort of, that's public health as well, really. So being able to reach out to people who have um, large platforms and a stage, and, uh, you know, to try and speak out about important things and work with influencers and people who have, who have a voice um, in ways that, um, you know, maybe UXA or public health, you know, uh, and I just wouldn't have because people don't necessarily connect with that in the same way as they do with people. So that messaging um, needed to be evidence-based. So where is that information coming from? Is it someone's guessing? Is it someone just saying, I heard through the grapevine, this is what happened. And so it's just trying to be careful, I guess, even as people are utilising these people to sort of send information out, we're also considering whether or not that is the correct information and recognise that information can change quite quickly. And that can be quite confusing because it seems like someone is not telling the truth when really we're learning something as like sort of in real time. And that's what we had to be careful of, even as we were utilising these connections. So, yeah, complica complicated, definitely. So... Still have my philosophical question in the background. But yeah. um, a thought came to mind and I was wondering, um, to what extent do you think, you know, having dealt with COVID for as long as we did prepared us to, um, or didn't prepare us to manage um, the, the, the right, the monkeypox, um, I don't know what to call it, the rise in monkeypox cases. Um, like how did it prepare us? for that at all? Were, were, were people more ready? Were, were the communications ready or not? Um, was there any type of, okay, we just dealt with this, so we already have the machinery, so let's get into this new situation. Or were we so tired that we just kind of was like, we'll get to it. What, what, what do you, in your estimation, was the kind of impact of having just dealt with COVID or you know, still, having, still dealing with COVID? Um, how did that help or hamper dealing with monkeypox? Well, I would take a step back even further than COVID and I'll take it straight to the HIV epidemic, okay? Because that was really important to understand what we'd learned from HIV going to COVID and how we utilise that to understand things like 
um, rapid testing or isolation or, you know, sort of how we can, um, we talk about informed, um, sort of informed consent, also thinking about not notifying notifying others, so that sort of contact tracing element, you know, so there's lots of things we should have already known from sort of HIV that we could have easily used in COVID. And the same is true from COVID going into monkeypox. And so, you know, um, we talk about not just about the clinical side of things, we tend to think, think quite a lot about health, um, how we measure people's health, how we test, how we do, you know, how we how we evaluate if somebody's well or not well, if they're infectious or not infectious. But actually, there's an entire workforce issue as well. And so we talk about something called surge capacity. So do we have enough people in the system to actually respond to what we're needing them to respond to? So in COVID, we had to mobilize a massive um, health protection workforce to ensure we had people on the phones, that we had people running uh, tests, people working in um, in factories to try and um, bag up and assemble all of the test kits and the and the and the um, the PPE and all. You know, we didn't necessarily have the workforce in place. So there's a lot of things we're doing right now in health protection to make sure that um, we know who the wider workforce is, both clinical and non-clinical. The stuff we're trying to do to ensure that we understand what training is available. Is it an e-learning module, a platform? Is it CPD? as in continued professional development? Is it, um, is it um, accredited? You know, what do people want uh, and what do people need? Um, so if something like this does happen again, we are ready. Monkeypox is just the same. So there were lots of articles and radio interviews and, uh, and podcasts and, uh, you know, things like that um, that were responding to something that we didn't really understand very well, recognising that actually every time we have something um, that happens, um, that requires us to utilize our labs for testing or to um, to get diagnostics. It actually puts quite a bit of extra pressure on an already pressurized system. So you know, we know if we go into sexual health clinics, sometimes you have to wait to still get your results if you don't do point of care testing or you don't do rapid or online testing. So the same thing is true. People have to make room in the lab so that people can then come in and then say, can you please run the diagnostics on these monkey, you know, not monkey pots because there was no test for monkey pots, but on um, this other type of test. And so everything slows down and it puts a lot of pressure on the system. So uh, with monkey pots, there was no way to do point of care testing. There was no rapid response. There was no way other than if people had symptoms. Um, and so the best thing that we could say is, you know, to try and push vaccination and just encourage people to be mindful of what they were doing uh, and about how they were feeling. Okay. So my, now for the philosophical question, and this is something I got okay. um, Maybe it's not even philosophical, maybe it's, maybe it's another equal. But um, it was, I grappled with it as I saw some of the conversations around monkeypox, and it was, was there inherent value in considering monkeypox a sexually transmitted infection or disease? Um, and if there was, what was it? Because I wasn't sure, because I did see some people saying yes, recognize it as, but I never understood what was the overarching benefit of that. Um, but then I have a broader view on how we kind of understand STS, but he's not a doctor, so I guess it's not for me to say one way or another, but yeah, I, that was, that's where my mind is at. Like, was it helpful, harmful? In what kind of ways um, to kind of see and call this uh, an, an STI or treat with it as an STI, whether it's in the communications or just the kind of resource mobilization and the responses that people were able to do around it? Yeah, complex question yet again. Um, you know, this is, um, and I'm going to try and make a make sort of a, 
my answer quite simple, um, which is in the beginning, because of who was affected, there was a tendency for people to think, oh, it's another one of those things, let's just throw it in a category. Well, actually, that's not, that's not the case. Um, in the end, it was not decided that it was actually classified as a sexually transmitted disease because there were other methods that people were contracting monkeypox, like skin contact or coming in contact with fluids um, from, and not being too graphic, but um, sort of coming out of um, sort of sores on the skin. So people came in contact with the liquid or sort of from those um, sores that they could have contracted um, monkeypox. But uh, that has nothing to do with sex so actually why would they have considered that to be a sexually transmitted disease um and i guess it was just because of how it was being transmitted and with who but in the end there was no justification for that and actually some of these conversations come down to like funding who are we going to get to fund this do we want sexual health to fund this or do we get um ipc to fund this infection um prevention and control or do we get some other part of the system to try and fund it who's going to take the responsibility for for the hereafter you know, so sometimes it's a political thing to sort of say, let's classify it in this way. But actually, we forget that we need to be making some person-centered approaches to how we're diagnosing things, thinking about the after effects, thinking about who's affected um, and how they're affected, um, and mainly by how we're communicating what we're communicating. And so um, that's sort of maybe a simpler answer than maybe I could give to that. But essentially, it started as being classified in that way. But as we got to learn more about it and thought about the public health implications of classifying it as that when it was not that. Um, there were more reasons than not for us to try and think a little bit differently about how we were talking about it. And, you know, not as an STI in the same way that we sort of need to be thinking about HIV. Like, do we need to be classifying that as an STI or do we need to separate that for the sake of understanding it better and maybe removing some of the stigma? So, so yeah. And, 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 and here's the follow-up. What are the public health implications is really kind of what's at the heart of my question as well. What are the public health implications, whether it is benefits or drawbacks? I hear you on funding um, for classifying any illness or virus um, as something that's an STI um, or not, or just an infectious disease. Um, and should the potential for stigma weigh in favor matter when we're thinking about that classification? Massively. The answer is yes, stigma is always important um, in the same way that, that discrimination is really important and, um, uh, and equity is important. You know, these, these are core things that we need to be considering. So stigma is still a massive thing that we're trying to tackle. There's some campaigns for HIV or STI that are solely centered around stigma because it's such a massive issue. Um, and so when it comes to um, how things are actually categorized in public health, it really is around how that thing is transmitted. And so for example, if you get a cold or you you know you get the flu, we wouldn't classify that as an STI because of how that is transmitted. It has nothing to do with your sexual behaviours or what you, what you do in the bedroom or anywhere else, frankly. Um, so that's probably a really simple way to look at it is the how. So, um, uh, for example, if we talk about um, uh, sort of drug use or we talk about intravenous drug use or there's different ways we can describe that. Um, we wouldn't call something, we wouldn't credit it to somebody um, utilising um, or sharing needles, for example, um, if it wasn't transmitted that way, there's no, there's no relevance. And so we have to be thinking about the how, I think, um, and the public health implication is that when we think about the how, that we can then mobilise um, the so what, which is what we're going to do about it. Um, and uh, start thinking about what the messaging needs to be, what, you know, when we talk about um, preventative measures or prevention 
what does that message, if it was in five words or one sentence, what would that message need to be for people to understand what behaviour change is required in order to avoid the risk or to mitigate the risk um, of, uh, of sort of contracting something like that? I hope that makes sense. It does. It, it, it does. I, I, I want to go back to that message in Harvey um, mm -hmm. and maybe like also like personal responsibility. And, I, and we, we started with COVID um, targeting um, the queer community where people are saying um, stop having sex, stop having hookups. We saw it again um, with monkeypox. And, you know, of course, there has to be some personal responsibility, right? Um, and I also saw it with PrEP. Um, we've continued to promote PrEP as a combined approach. So you must use condom um, alongside when you're doing event-based or um, the daily PrEP. But what if people don't stop having sex? What if people don't use a condom with PrEP? How, how are our interventions tailored in a way that still, in a sense, serves them? Because people are not, I, I feel like the, 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 the stop having sex just don't make any sense, to be honest, because people are not going to stop having sex. But how can you still allow them to have the sex, maybe not the three times or the five times, maybe one and a half time or two times, um, they're still able to test, they're still able to kind of do that kind of thing. Oh, you have six and a half time. Glad <laughs> Midday. You call midday as half time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean that that's that's another really good question because um that message did come out. There was a, a period of time, if not only a week or two, when they were saying stop having sex, you know, when it came to COVID, and people were like, sorry excuse me <laughs> like what you like what do you mean so because actually when we think about sexual well-being sexual well-being having sex is an important part of your well-being so actually they were saying don't be well don't be well so we can make you well which is not a message that people can really process so um i'm also thinking about we talk about um even condom use or like prep or you know we're talking about inf informed um informed choice the things that people we need to give people choice what do you want to do and how can we make that safe for you that's what public health is Unfortunately, um, when we look at the medical model of health, it's really around you're sick, I'm the healer, let me fix you. And you can come back as many times as you like, and that's all we're going to do. You're broken, I fix you. You're broken, I fix you. You're broken, I fix you. And there's a hierarchical approach to that that says, I, you need me, so you have to come to me. So you do the effort, and actually you're hard to reach. So all the language that follows that as well is not helpful. Now, what the social model of health really is, that might be in relation to disability, it might be in relation to people of faith, it might be related to people of um, uh, trans identity. Whatever that thing is, the social model says, actually, the world is making it difficult for you. So we need to be do better as a world of making that simpler for you. Okay, because we're, we're, we're complicating it and then saying that individuals are the problem. So actually, if we can change the way that we're doing what we're doing within systems of health, we will start to see improvements. And so what PrEP is, is it's a preventative tool um, but what it does is it gives people choice. And so it, so it says, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to try and find a tool that's going to help you to be safer when you're going to do that thing. And then, uh, then another element of that might be working on, you know, sort of health education promotion, you know, to wrap around that to help people to remain informed. And then they might change their mind about what they want to do. But it's not up to us as health practitioners to try and tell people what we think they should be doing. If anything, that's really harmful. 
so the whole thing of there was even a campaign during the the pandemic saying um you know the reverse cowboy was the was was the the, the safest way to go about because you're not facing the person i mean wear a mask while having sex you know and the list went on of all these different ways to say keep having sex but do it covid safe and actually people took it into their own hands people were still going in the woods and still dogging i don't know if i can say that on this uh, podcast but you know people, yeah. <laughs> can. okay good <laughs> People were still going off into the woods, still meeting, you know, still breaking rules because they assessed the situation. They self-assessed the risk, the risk associated with being alone in a flat with no view, with no green space, could have go outside um, and actually probably spiraling into a really negative mental well-being um, sort of situation or taking the risk of sneaking and going and having sex because that was really good for them um, and it, it gave them a good sense of self and it, you know it was good exercise and all the things that people forget to say it is sex is good exercise it makes you sweat good good you know you, you get it out of your system and you get and you get your heart rate up that is what sex is and so unfortunately particularly in this country we don't like to talk about it because we think that it is it is taboo we can't bring it up how could you be discussing that on a on a you know a media platform why not why, why aren't we discussing that more? And I think that, that we talk about colonialism. That is absolutely rooted in colonialism, not wanting to talk about uh, about purely natural things. And so um, COVID was a complex one. And yes, people did take it into their own hands. They said, no, I think I think I know what I need. Um, and I'm going to risk assess that for myself. Now, they wouldn't have known they were risk assessing it, but they were risk assessing it. Uh, and the government does the same thing. They risk assess. And they say, actually, the risk of putting condoms into venues for people to potentially touch them during COVID and maybe there might be a spread. The risk is lower to do that than to not put the condoms out and then there'd be a flare up in STIs or, or uh, even incidence um, rates within HIV that we have to deal with later on. And so they risk assess that and said, you know what, go ahead and put the condoms out there. You know, go ahead and let people come in and, and get their prep or, or do it via postal service. Do whatever you need to be doing because the risk is never zero. We just decide that we're going to either justify it, we're going to mitigate it, or we're going to accept that risk. That's, that's risk mitigation and that's risk management. So that's what we did as, as part of COVID. You, you, you know, <laughs> you know, I wanted to, if I had an offering panel, I'd, I'd collect some offering. Um, <laughs> because I've been, to be honest, Harry, I've been saying, and I've been preaching this, Mm. And I like the fact that when, when you talk about, you see people who do, and that's what I wanted to do when I did my MPH, I wanted it to be at a school that did it from a socioeconomic standpoint and not a medical standpoint. Because I think yeah. when you do MPH from socioeconomic standpoint, you understand health more. You understand yeah. that. And I always use the example of if somebody who's living in a damp house comes, goes to the doctor and they're being treated because the damp house is making them sick and you treat them and you send them back to the damp house, you haven't fixed them because they're going to come <laughs> back because the housing is the problem. Housing yes, yes. as a determinant of health is a problem and we're not fixing the problem. And that's what the medical model of health kind of does. And I one of the one of the, the, the best things I learned, um, the, the, the health belief model, because it's so epic, like majority of the things that are brown health, I'd apply health belief because I really think that whether people, as you said, whether people know it as or not, people do assess their risk. Mm -hmm. a lot of things and outside of health we do assess our risk and then we make um a decision and, and I, I wish we we kind of understood those things more and as you said meet people where they are ask people what it is what is it that you kind of want right and then yeah. kind of tailor interventions to kind of but we, we do create this 
group kind of thing and group things I don't think fix because people within health we, we kind of have to be as tailored as as best as possible to kind of be able to fix people because each mm -hmm. individual is going to present with a different kind of thing yeah 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 so we talk about holistic thinking about the whole person but also in being brave enough to individualize what we're doing for those people so it's almost like if you open a shop and you're selling some sweets some nuts some bread some chocolate okay you put it all there people come by what do they do they look at all you have to offer and they choose what they want right um but somehow we we've lost the concept of of um of how we have that transaction of of human to human we sort of we sort of come and say i, I know we have other things but actually you're not able to access them you're on you can only buy the chocolate don't even look at the sweets, don't look at the bread, just look at it, right? You can only buy chocolate. And it's, we sort of need to be thinking why that's how it's become, you know, because that's not how it was in time time of old when you were, either you're selling or you're not selling, either you're making these things available or you're not making them available. Um, and so that that informed choice, giving people an opportunity to say, actually, I've gone away, you've handed me a leaflet, you've had a conversation with me, you've asked me a question, whatever that intervention is. And, and I now, I'm going to go away and think about it. That, thanks, I'm going to go away and think about it and once I've thought about it, I'll come back and let you know what I've decided to do, right? That's what actually, that's what um, the social model of health really should be uh, and really is. You know, it's not this whole hierarchical thing of, well, I have to go to my doctor, my doctor will tell me what I need to do, which is which is the old way that we used to deal with our health. The doctor will tell me, it's all right, I'll go to the doctor and he'll tell me what I need to do. So what if you, what, what if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you need to do this and it's the wrong thing? Would you know? So actually there's a, there's a role of public health to come in and say, here are the options. But I think there's, a, there's an article I'm um, presenting at a journal club in the next couple of weeks. And, and the title is Chaos in Western Medicine. And I would encourage people to look that up because it really thinks about the way we think about MBBSs and the way we think about MDs and with the way we think about um, uh, sort of ARMPs or so nurse practitioners. We think about all of these medical professionals and we've put them on a pedestal. Meanwhile, if you were to ask them what they knew, they would say, we actually don't know everything. So we have to refer you as well or we have to just assess and we can only speculate based on the um, assessment that we do on you, that we, we think it might be this, and then we can eliminate other things. And so we have to be thinking about how, how we put people on pedestals, even public health people. Wow, you're the director of such and such, it must be true. Actually, it's not up to any one person to say what something is or, or should not be. We have to be putting that back in the hands of people um, uh, so that they can make the decision about what's best for them because they know themselves the best. So once again, with, 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 the, with a tricky question. <laughs> I'm wondering if you were to kind of put your finger on, if you were, you know, to kind of think and put your finger on, I guess, the reason for, I guess, the fixation on the what you frame as a kind of hierarchical medical approach um, within sometimes a lot of the public health responses. Why, why do you think that is the case? Um, why do you think that's the go-to, which is the, the kind of predictive of all right, don't do this, don't have the sex, stay away here. You don't need to be doing this, abstain, whatever it is, because it, it it it's featured in many different ways in which we we, we try to manage uh, different health complications. Uh, and um, you have any thoughts on why is that where we begin? The first reason I think it's just out of habit is how it's always been, so we just do it that way. So there's a lack of challenge to habitual. Um, malpractice. I don't want to say, oh, that's a strong word, malpractice. Don't put me in prison. But I'm just saying that there is something mal about it, meaning bad, because it's not giving us the result that we're wanting. So it's not necessarily beneficial practice. And so 
it's just historical. That's the first thing. Secondly, um, I think that it has something to do with um, how removed people are from those experiences. We talk about COVID and you now there was a, an article that came out uh, that was saying beyond COVID, um, looking at the impact uh, of COVID on uh, black and black Asian and minority ethnic people in Britain. That was something that was published by um, Professor Dr. Kevin Benton. It was a 69 page document. It was a review that came out that really told us what we need to know about why people were experiencing higher rates in certain groups because they had to take the bus. They had to, they had to um, work in close proximity. They were in multi-generational households. They didn't have access to PPE. They had to work in conditions where they were at higher risk. Nurses, janitors, people working in um, by the bedside. Um, and so they were naturally at higher risk. We're talking about they, we're talking about people from racially minoritized backgrounds here in the UK and other parts of the world as well. And we talk about that socioeconomic um, implication um, in, in the context of COVID. Um, sometimes people who are in decision-making capacities are so far removed from why that could even be someone's situation that the decisions that they make often do not reflect what's going to work best for those people. And so we have people who might have gone into medicine, they might be in, in high high role, high role, um, level roles, um, decision-making capacities. They're often people from middle-class backgrounds and the middle-class in the UK is not middle-class what, what it means in the US or maybe even in Jamaica. Middle-class is really, it's like, it's like upper class, you would say. So, you know, people who come from, you know, they come from money, they come from quite, you know, they're affluent. And so they've never been, They've never experienced poverty or deprivation. They've never experienced, um, you know, having to go without. They've never experienced lala champagne and just having, you know, well, this is what we have in the fridge, <laughs> and you know, we're just going to see what we whip up on the on the on the table. Now, you know, it's it's not something that they would understand, and 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 they know that. But at the end of the day, it's still up to them to make that decision, um, uh, because that's their role. <laughs> and so we were sort of stuck in a cycle. Um, of decision making and so when we we uh, put a call out to the system and we say what can we do you know uh, changes needed um, we need to be thinking about how we're designing how we're hiring how we're constructing the workforce the challenge is we can't just have a workforce that is racially um, uh, made up of um, uh, that has racial 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 minority um, representation at a low level we have to have people at decision making um, levels who understand that they need to be reaching out to people with expert lived experience to get the context behind what decision they need to be making and what the implications would be if they make the wrong decision and, and, and to and to utilize then the data in their in their prioritization. So that's a lot of words to basically say the right people are not making decisions oftentimes. And uh, and secondly, uh, well uh, and firstly, going back to firstly is that we've just always done it that way. And so it, we need we need to give some constructive challenge to the system. Are there any examples of models of public health approaches where the, you know, there, there are more spaces within which, you know, patients, the, the general public are able to kind of help to shape some of these responses where citizen groups are able to kind of say, hey, this is what this needs to look like. Um, I feel like in many ways that had to happen with the HIV um, pandemic globally um, in different parts of the world, but outside of that, are there any kind of examples of that being a reality outside of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, we talk about community-based participatory research and, and what that really means is that the, the community or whatever population you're seeking to understand is fully engaged in the co-production and the co-development of every stage of that research. And so their voices are actually 
um, genuinely heard as experts in that. But that, that's going to take somebody who is who a understands what CBPR is, and so community-based participatory research, and somebody who understands how to make the most of that opportunity. Because there's still some some research that goes you know through that same process, and it doesn't give you what we need to find out. Um, and we sort of say, "Wow, pat on the back, trophy to me. I, I finished the process." Well, actually, but what do we learn? You know, what what, what do we actually take away from that? Um, and and that's. Um, sort of shown since the 1970s actually um sherry arnstein in uh, her article um maximum feasible manipulation she talks about uh you know this ladder of citizen participation you know where we talk about that entry point where do people come into that process um are they um just coming for a consultation are they coming out the co-production are they coming are they leading on that are they co-designing co-developing things um are they just learning what where do we bring people in and actually it's perfectly fine that people come in at quite a low level of consultation or education and they can move up as they remain a part of that intervention they can then move up into being you know big decision makers in that um or, and they can even move sort of back and forth across that ladder is what she says but um we know that it works we know that people can um, uh, ask communities. We know that people that communities are the experts of their experience. We know that um, there is absolutely no rule that says this person must be, they must hold a doctorate. They must hold some type of qualification because we are each experts of our own experience. And so with COVID, people were experiencing COVID in different ways. They had different dynamics on a neighborhood level, on a, you know, a place-based level, uh, you know, a, uh, a local level, people were experiencing what they were experiencing. And what we found out actually is that a lot of people that we were saying were at a disparity of experiencing COVID, they actually, they didn't even realise that they were, they were at a disparity. They didn't even know. They just thought everybody was experiencing it all in the same way. And so we have, we make some assumptions that people know that they're experiencing deprivation or or whatever else it is, but what are they comparing that to? What are they comparing that to? So, you know, yeah, we know that communities can lead research we know that their voices can be at the forefront of what we're saying but we need to let that happen but i think we're sometimes a little protective over that expertise because we think it's it makes us who we are and actually it's a, it's a level playing field you know it's we're all we're all just part of the population okay and yeah, I think my final question would be because I know Jamaica, like countries like Jamaica and the other countries within the Caribbean that didn't necessarily experience monkeypox like how the UK, um, other parts of the, the Europe had experienced it and had to respond. Um, if it is that monkeypox does reemerge, well, I don't think it has left, but um, if we do experience it within the Caribbean, like the UK and, and the other parts of you um Europe, what do you think our approach in kind of learning from what happened in the UK and other parts of what, what do you think are the mistakes that we shouldn't kind of make in um responding and what role would um because I'm, I'm organizations like JFLAG, persons who work with um LGBT um persons in um Jamaica um kind of have in that kind of response i mean i think the landscape in jamaica and in the uk are completely different you know i think that we we tend to think they're quite similar because oh the colonial link you know the colonial link you know that's that is like it couldn't be more different i tell you from a social perspective the realization we we saw in jamaica you'd understand colorism because we know that everybody is just a high you know high red or your high yellow you know that's quite different people say oh they must be they'll be more likely to get into, into jobs or get into certain live in certain parts of of, of the map but you know 
when you come out of Jamaica and you come to places like the UK or the US and you start experiencing racism for the first time and you say, what is this? What is this thing? I, I, I don't know. Why would you think any different of me? Why would why would they think any differently of me? Uh, you know, I'm just, I am me. Don't, uh, you know, I'm great. I have so much to offer the world. And you're thinking, why did this person say it in that way? And when you start to discover the impact of things like racism and discrimination on a lot of the things that we're discussing, I think that there's a level of cohesion that Jamaicans would have. Um, it's more collectivist in that you say, you know, when you see a Jamaican public health campaign versus a, you know, a sort of a more Western sort of public health campaign, they're different. The rhythm is different. The, the call out is different. What you're asking people to do, the, the slogans are different. Everything is different because there's a level of individualism that you see in the in, in the far West that, you, you know, sometimes places in the, in the East or in the Caribbean or other places, they wouldn't understand. What do you mean doing it for yourself? What do you mean it's just you? You know, it, the concept of doing one one thing for oneself is a very colonial way of thinking, if I'm quite honest. And so actually, the way that Jamaica might respond to something like that, I think that um, sort of, certainly the Ministry of Justice would be, I think, more reactive because it's a smaller country. And I think that we've, we've had to learn things, um, both from a cultural perspective, but also Jamaicans are not stupid people. Okay, <laughs> Contrary to some, some popular belief somewhere, somewhere else, Jamaicans are not stupid people. Jamaicans are very intelligent and we tend to figure things out quite quickly. We just mobilise it. I think that we sort of get in our way in the UK a little bit with um, with hierarchy and bureaucracy. Well, you're not such and such and you can't make that decision or you're not such and such. I'm not saying that does not exist in Jamaica, but I'm just saying there's a cultural element there um, that of, of racism in this country that makes things even slower. Um, and so I think that Jamaica would do quite a good job at responding in the same way that they did for COVID, you know. The, the COVID was a perfect example of what Jamaica is... is, is um, is um, able to do, you know, in response to these types of things. So I think they would just do it again. That's not bad. That's not bad. Big up Jamaica, lad. Never know something. Not really bad. Not really bad. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much um, for kind of unpacking some of these issues with us, especially with like you, you know, this is down in the area, right? And I, and I thought of science and stuff like Right. Thank you so much for coming, you know, chopping it up with us, you know, and, and giving us like differential understandings on these issues. I particularly appreciate it. I know Lanzel over there lived in best life. So um Lanzel, I'm gonna allow you to wrap up um because the girls um I'm here and I fall yeah. Okay. Um I don't normally do this, um, but as Glenn said, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Harvey, for imparting your knowledge. Um, as Glenn always say, um, something always a grown. Wash it off, wipe it down, sanitize it before you put it in your mouth, anywhere you're putting it. Um, ensuring that you're doing that. If you have feedback, comment, queries, anything that you'd want to share, if there's a topic that you'd want to hear us discuss, we're fishtpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we're fishtea on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, and yeah, have a great week. Thank you for always tuning in. Thank you for always listening. And as Glenn always says, stay sophisticated. Bye. Bye.